Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything. I'm Linda Lucina, the Managing Editor at Entrepreneur.com, and I'm excited to welcome you to a podcast about getting poised for greatness. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Judith Glazer. Hi, Judith. Hi, great to be here. She's one of the smartest, hardest working, and most interesting entrepreneurs I have the pleasure of talking with. Judith is the founder of Benchmark Communications and the chairman of the Creating We Institute. But more specifically, she's a student of neuroscience and an organizational anthropologist studying how conversations change innovation. I've been fortunate to have some amazing conversation with her on what I think is the most underused tool in business today, and I'm grateful to bring you in on one of the distinct pleasures of my job, talking with Judith. But first, a word from our sponsor. We know the world of business can be unpredictable. But Chase for Business has what you need to keep you on top of your finances so you can own whatever comes your way next. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business. All right, Judith. Let's start first with some backstory. Take us into how you got started with listening and languages. I think it involves a story about you as a young girl and your father is a, a dental ambassador. Wow, you figured it all out. <laughs> it's a great place to start. It's fascinating. I was 11 years old, and I felt patterns in my family of conversation and didn't know what to call it, but I did know that at times I actually wanted to run away from home. And I would take my sister and brother, we'd pack a bag and go down the street where there was a family that was so warm and loving. And I'd feel different. I could feel the chemistry shift in my body. Now, I wasn't a neuroscientist then. I didn't know what it was, but I did know the difference between feel good and not feel good. And so I started this pursuit of looking at patterns, and, and I connected it to my family. And this is how. I found an article about my father tucked away in our basement. Again, secrets in our family were very, very big. There was a lot of telling activity, not a lot of pulling activity to talk to us, but there were a lot of secrets. And what I found is I found my dad in a tutu, and I found my dad um, being the valedictorian of his class, all these things that I didn't know about him. So I decided I was going to face, face, the, face the dad and get the story. And as I talked to him, and he, this is the first time he ever opened up, he started to talk about how he had been a stutterer when he was younger that my grandmother, he was born a twin, and his sister passed away at the age of five, and his job was to push the carriage. So he really didn't have an identity. So there's something about conversations, identity, how our brain works. And he became a stutterer, and his identity was very small. And teachers knew he was smart, but he didn't have a voice. And one day, he had a teacher who was a theater teacher who saw in him something special. And this is the part that for me was the most profound. She asked if she could be, coach him and her idea was to put him on the stage and have him be the lead in the play. And my father said, I can't talk. I mean, imagine that's how severe it was. But she coached him and coached him and gave him confidence. And he found a place where he could stand inside of an identity. And all of a sudden, my dad released this and became a speaker, amazing speaker. Mm -hmm. And he ended up being, uh, you said, ambassador to the world. He was, he was the first dental ambassador mm -hmm. and went around the world learning seven languages on his own because his auditory, his listening skills were so high when he was stuttering that that enhanced. So my dad became this very amazing speaker. So here I go from not knowing anything to knowing this amazing information. I started to read medical books. I wanted to find out what this person did to him that enabled him to step into a new identity. Now, I can't tell you I loved the identity because he was a teller. I mean, he did not get the pull 
and push, which is what I study so much, is that interaction dynamic. He did get the tell down very well. Mm -hmm. And so I started to go into studies wherever I could find information about patterns and logging them and observing in my client organizations what was going on that helped people feel good at work or feel bad at work. And that's the beginning of this, this story about conversational intelligence. Mm -hmm. Very good. Explain to us exactly what conversational intelligence is for so, folks who don't know. So every human being is built with an ability to connect with other human beings, to connect, to navigate, and grow. That's what our language does for us. It's not just to collect information or to know things, but it's all about engaging. And so conversational intelligence is the science of building trust with human beings in a way that enables the conversations to be high quality and those conversations to transform our history and, in fact, our world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's it's really interesting because I, I feel like most people think that they've got conversations down. They're like, why well, do that all day long? Yeah. Right. But what is it that they're missing? Because clearly things are missing. <laughs> right. They are. What, 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 what's the gap that, that doesn't get bridged? So here's what we're finding out. Nine out of 10 conversations fail to hit the mark, meaning they're not accomplishing what both people wanted it to do. We found that listening is the key to everything. And how we listen is also the most important thing. Um, the first article I wrote about listening was 30 years ago, or more so, for IBM. And it was just a fluke because they wanted me to write something for their magazine. It became the article of the year. It, apparently, it's hitting, listening hits the chord for people. That when we're listening, our brain can do a number of things that we, until we study it, didn't know. Mm -hmm. First of all, there's this noise in the attic. You're not really there for people. You know, half of your life is being processed while you're listening to someone and you come in and out. And people feel that, that which is what I'm learning in this research, that in 0 0.07 seconds, I can tell whether you're connected to and we're connected. Um, so noise in the attic, um, face value listening, like I, you tell me something and I say, yeah, okay, I believe it and I don't question or challenge it. I don't really know what you're thinking really, but I say I got it. So it's that low level of listening that we're identifying that exists in many companies, many conversations, and we want to lift people up so that they're listening to connect, which is the beautiful phrase that I use now to leaders to help them understand the difference. Listening to connect, not judge or reject. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and, and again, most people, if you ask them, just like if you say, hey, you know, who's a good boss, who's a bad boss, everybody, no one will ever categorize themselves as a bad boss or somebody who's not effective. Everyone is the most effective person in the room, right? But uh, when it comes down to, to listening, right, what, what specifically are people doing, right, when they, for instance, when they listen to judge or when they listen to reject, what, what are they doing in their brains when someone else is talking that, that, is, that is already shutting down the message that's coming at them? What, what, what is happening? Can What's actually going on yeah. in their brain? Most, most times we see people listening to find a place to put their thought in. In other words, I'm in a conversation. We want to talk about business. I have ideas. I can't wait to tell you my ideas. And I'm not really that interested in yours in many cases because people win in companies where their point of view is the one that people um, approve as the top top voice. It's very animalistic. It's very part of our um, limbic brain that wants to be on the top. But people are really looking for where they can add value. On one level, it sounds great. I have something to add. It's terrific. But on the other, on the other hand, it closes the space for other people to be in the conversation with you. Mm -hmm. So that's at work. That seems to be the, the biggest issue that we face. Mm -hmm. And chemically, what happens when people feel like they've been rejected or they've been judged? Like what happens to, to, to you as a, as a listener? You know, what's the impact? Yep. So have you heard the word amygdala hijacking? Yes. Yes. So this is, this is where we'll go with this one. It's, um, there's, um, uh, what happens is when we feel minimized, um, overpowered, intimidated, judged, all of those things, those words that we know are the, 
we don't want to have in that relationship. Our amygdala, which is in the lower brain, it's the reptilian brain for a lot of people, activates and it starts to spew cortisol. Cortisol is an incredibly powerful neurochemistry in our brain that actually has the ability to close down the rest of the brain. It literally is like messaging the brain to close down and it puts us in what's called protect behavior. So I'm now feeling defensive against you. Um, I'm not going to listen to you. And I'm thinking, okay, what can I do to get into this conversation? Some people get fight, uh, fright and they don't. They don't talk. Some people get fight and they want to go in and really push their way in. But I'm not in a neutral zone at that point when I'm cortisol hijacked. I am not present for you and I'm actually judging you as you are judging me. Mm -hmm. and, and what is the impact then in sort of the, the daily workplace, right? So how does that impact sort of new ideas or brainstorming sessions or the uh, workaday lives of uh, regular people? How does that impact things? So we now know that um, the part of our brain that produces new ideas is the prefrontal cortex. It's the newest brain and the heart. And why do I bring the heart in? Because um, people can't open up this part of the brain. It's so new that it hasn't gotten um, as powerful at handling negativity. So it only goes open when they feel trust. So that part of our brain is going to close down. Environments that want to be innovative, where people can come up with ideas, not old ideas, not circulating ideas that they've had, but really new ones, new ones themselves and also what they have with others, that part of our brain have, has to be open. So if we're in an unsafe environment where you have a lot of politicking and people are trying to figure out who's the boss or climb the ladder or whatever and exclude others and people do it in every company I've seen, they don't intend to intimidate or do that, but it's part of our repertoire. Um, then those companies aren't going to have the level of innovation that you and I are thinking are what companies need to be ultimately successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every idea isn't equal because it's got to fight your own inner battles first before it can even get out of your mouth. <laughs> exactly. And fast, I want you to tell everybody needs to hear this. Those wonderful new ideas that are the unique ones that I call it's like the bird flying by. It flies by when there's a safety net there. And if you catch it, you now have something that is probably one of the more profound things that you've thought of in a long time. Mm -hmm. People don't know that those ideas only have a short shelf life if there's a lot of cortisol around. So you get this idea and you might say, okay, I'll remember that. It, do you remember all those wonderful little ideas? No. No, that's right. It, we don't. But they were so good. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not uh, blessed with too many great ideas. But uh, when I do have them, I... I <laughs> you want to make sure you write them down. <laughs> Got them right now. Uh, tell me a little bit. Um, there's a quote that I, I read that you, um, you had made. Uh, it says, when human beings are in sync, great music plays. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what that means to you? I can't believe that you found that quote. You're so good. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. And it's because there's a sense and feeling that when human beings create their safe space, clear out all the things that might cause them to be hijacked, there's something that happens in a room. It's almost like a jazz quartet. It's like um, people playing music together where we riff. I, I used to have people over in my house when I was younger, and they'd riff. They'd never played before, but once they got in there, they started to riff. And that starts to happen in human beings. What happens is we, when we can connect beautifully with people, there's a thing called mirror neurons also in this part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. And the mirror neurons... I'm actually mirroring you. Now, doesn't that sound weird that I can, what am I mirroring? I'm not changing my, my physical person, but I'm picking up the energy field that you produce. When I feel trust and you feel trust, we mirror each other's brains. And I'm starting to read your brain almost before the ideas happen. Mm -hmm. Now, doesn't that sound like a little woo-woo on one level? <laughs> but it's science now. It's really science. And so the, the mirror neurons start to map and we start to sing together. In other words, you'll start something and I'll add to it and someone else will add to it. And these ideas will start to pop out because the freedom 
to connect and connect in a healthy way and in a trusting way has been created by this group of people. And what comes out, some people call magic, like we never would have had those ideas happen if we weren't in sync with each other. And that's when great music plays. Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think it's it's very interesting because people like to um, uh, put a lot of other labels on when something works, right? Like they say, oh, it's great culture, you know, but it's uh, sort of a, uh, not a great label because uh, we when we talk about culture, we don't uh, always think about, well, what makes a great culture? What mm -hmm. makes uh, innovation? All these words are uh, not uh, useful, not effective, you know, and yeah. when we kind of get down to what are the tools of innovation, tools of culture, the tools of working together, mm -hmm. I think then it becomes a little bit more um, uh, useful to people. <laughs> right. And tangible. I have to say, culture is an abstract term. I have, and my quote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of the culture, yeah. which depends on the quality of the relationships, which depends on the quality of the conversations. Culture is abstract. Mm -hmm. And people talk about it like it's a tangible thing. We have a great culture. We don't have a great culture. But until we dig down into what it is, and I can tell you, it's always connected to conversations. Mm -hmm. There was a, two studies done, one by MIT and one by Harvard, that looked at the most successful cultures. And that was the MIT study that recently got published. And they said the single most important thing is the conversations and the quality of those conversations between people. Every research they're doing now goes back to that. Harvard had a research project. for It's now in its 75th year. And they looked at graduates from Harvard to see what made them most successful leaders in companies. And what do you think the answer was? The conversations. Conversations. Same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a common thread now. And I wish that people would think of this as either the decade of conversations or the maybe the century. I hope we could keep going that long. Yeah, I think um, I think part of the problem is that there is a lot of um, a lot of talking, and not always necessarily an, uh, maybe a, an exchange of ideas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a difference between uh, talking at someone and talking with them. Of course, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, a lot of monologues is what you what happened in companies. Yeah, people, and you know, a lot of people don't even get that that's what they're doing. You know, somebody will throw out an idea, and then somebody will throw out an idea. It's when those ideas begin to talk to each other that make all the difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what leaders need to learn how to encourage. It's not just having an open place where everybody can talk, but it's, it's what that talk is doing and how that talk is happening that produces the level of innovation that we're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some times that you've, uh, in your work, that you've found conversation and changing conversation had uh, a great power and, and made great change? What, what, where, where's an example that you've, you've sort of encountered? Would you like an individual? Would you like a team? Or would you like a company? Uh, I will take, uh, well, let's try an individual first. Okay. So um, I can mention the client's company because it's, um, I get permission to, to mention names when the, the stories are good. Um, the, and in, uh, at Verizon, I was asked to coach someone who reported to the CEO. And this guy had 13 coaches that he interviewed before he interviewed me. And I got the job. And I asked him why. I mean, 13 coaches, that's a little bit, I don't know what you'd call that, but excessive. I've never, uh, he said, I was the first person that didn't make him wrong. All the other coaches came in and said, you know, I'd be glad to work with you on the challenge or whatever it is that, as though they, they believed that he had a problem and he didn't. And that was part of my challenge was to come into him and say, I have no idea what all this research means. We're going to start working on this together and we'll partner. And so we did. And it turned out he was a very high-performing guy who wanted to push all his people to be better. What he didn't understand is that the impact that he was having wasn't high-performing at all. He ended up putting somebody in the hospital mm. with a heart attack who had been with the company for 25 years and actually said that he would leave the company without his pension rather than go back in and work for this guy. That's how horrible it was. And once he spoke up, it's like everybody came out of the woodwork and all the other people were complaining about what the issue was. So he did have a problem. But he also had an aspiration 
And I took this guy for the first three or four weeks. He didn't want to address the impact. He wanted to address his aspiration. And as a coach who understands that the more I would push on him to not talk about that, but to talk about look at your people, the more he pushed back. And so I let him talk and talk and talk. And then we talked about, would he be willing to do an experiment? And I love this because it replicates the experiments that I do in companies and in teams. It's change one thing to change everything. I said, what I've identified is that you have so many good ideas that you keep putting the ideas out for your team. I made it neutral, you know, putting your ideas out good for the team. I'd like you to play with this experiment. Instead of pushing your ideas, I want you to pull. So in the next meeting, I'd like you to find out what people want to put on the agenda. Let their ideas be the agenda, not yours. Let them come in and speak about it. And he had never done this before. And at the end of this meeting, it was clearly the best meeting he had ever had with his people. And I got a call the very next day from all of them saying, what did you give my boss to drink? <laughs> it was so, that's my story of going to people's houses. You feel the chemistry of someone who is so radically different change, and it's going from the push to the pull. And that was the beginning of his transformation. Up to that point, he didn't want to hear about impact or anything. He just wanted to, you know, push forward and achieve his results. Turned out he's now one of the best rated leaders in the whole company. He so swears by conversational intelligence and by learning that there's a push and a pull. It's like the music we play together. If, mm -hmm. if we don't do that dance, the brain locks down. It gets into a habit pattern of fright against a person. And so I will store a place in my brain about you and all the good things that we've done together. And anytime I see you, that's gonna come up. If you are a bad boss, the same thing's gonna come up and I will have fright occur in my body before I see you again, if you were one of those bosses that did what he did. Mm -hmm. So my job was not only to change his behavior, but was to change the dynamic in the team so that they could sustain that much more pull, push, uh, level three, let's get in each other's brains and explore together. And I'm proud to say, and uh, for his effort, he did a great job and was able to you know, restore an incredible um, culture. Now I went back to culture and team mm -hmm. in his organization. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned you had another example about, specifically about a team working with each other. Uh, how did that play out? So um, a company in uh, California, West Coast, um, they were in the media business, the TV business, and there were five different divisions, two on one floor and three on another floor. And they were so incredibly competitive. Even the spots that they took for parking because they wanted to work with Spielberg and they wanted to have the, you know, the whole um, reputation for being innovative. But the company wasn't thriving. The company was small little groups that were separate. And so I said, I need to do something to change the chemistry in this organization. First of all, I had to coach the senior people that they would be open to get feedback, that they were part of the conf confrontations. And each one of them was wanting to be the biggest boss. But moving forward, I said, what if I could create an environment for all of you to better understand who you are, not to fight against who you are, but to understand who you are. So I changed the dynamic, and this time showcasing, enabling each of the divisions to showcase what they did the best. It's the first time that they'd ever seen through neutral eyes what their colleagues were doing. They always resisted knowing that because they were pushing to be the best. All of a sudden, again, it was a fascinating thing happened. The idea started when I created the safe space. We did a lot of fun things to make that happen. All of a sudden, their ideas started to bounce around. They started to see what their colleagues did. And they said, oh, my God, wait a minute. I could use that for what we're trying to do. And in another case, we could do it for that. They were the people that did the um, Forrest Gump, you know, the feather mm -hmm. that comes down. That they, they invented that. That was one of the things. By giving them a chance to neutralize the 
what I call positional power stance, the one where you, you know where you really are trying to move. You're not listening. You're in there um, pushing your ideas and your ego in. By changing that space, something happened in the room that excited them so much that all of a sudden they decided they wanted to own a whole new culture. And they started to create opportunities to work together that became so profound that they ended up being so successful. There are seven companies, Paramount and Disney and all those things. They ended up getting business from all of them because their attitude when they went to meet a client had this new attitude of how well we can work together and about innovation and all those things. It was like they were exuding a different energy. Something pushed them away before. Now, all of a sudden, their energy was attracting all these companies to come work with them. They had to buy a building. And not only did they buy the building, but people from all these companies came over to see what was their culture looking like that they were able to produce such innovation. Mm-hmm. So they went from broken, not connecting, not uh, being very political, small company. It was a $15 million company when I started to work with them, and it's over $250 million. And it was because they changed that chemistry of how they connected with each other from being very positional and competitive to being what I call level three transformational. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was history. It's so beautiful to see that. It is beautiful. It's also interesting, too, because very um, very competitive, very driven people are it's, – engagement is not the issue, right? The, mm-hmm. <laughs> dedication is not the issue. Yeah. Um, but at some point, it gets lost, and they, um, they forget uh, how to include other people's contributions. They think that their contributions are, are the only one. How do you how, – how does that work? So somebody listening to this, and they, um, they don't necessarily uh, recognize that maybe their contributions are, you know, creating a broken – broken space, right? Right. Um, but they know that something's broken. It's not working, yep. right? Um, how do they get to that point where they can sit down and say, you know what, let's all talk about what we do great, mm-hmm. right, individually. What do we bring to all this? Like, how do they get to that point? What do you What do you recommend? So if I'm a coach and I can work with a, a leader, I would definitely talk to the leader about how they get together now. What are their meetings like? What have felt, what are the feel-good meetings? What are the feel-bad meetings? And then I would give them some conversational rituals to do that change the meeting environment and atmosphere. So something as simple as having a team scribe up on the wall, what, what would make this a great environment for us to have a conversation? What do we need from each other? So what would it look like? So people say, you know, telling the truth or um, listening, really listening to each other. Um, I do a thing called, I want people to hear this because it's so cool. It's called double clicking. Mm -hmm. So anytime somebody gives me a word that describes what they think they want, like open environments or transparency, I always say, tell me more. What does that mean? Because the more they talk it out, the more people in the room can find connecting points. If you just say transparency, it might kind of go by real quickly. And I wasn't really listening when you put it up anyway. But I get people to all contribute to interpreting what these words mean. And the more they interpret, the more that quality of a conversation starts to flow, and they're playing off of each other. They don't realize it, but they're actually starting to now share in designing and developing the culture that they want. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's, called, it's a conversational ritual. It's called rules of engagement. It's so simple. And the, the part that people tell me always that they love is the double click, because they never would have thought, let's say trust. Okay, I get trust. But what does trust look like when it happens? You know, what would we be doing differently? And it's that level of listening and connecting that are so small in little things that we do, like tell, ask, do more, ask less. Those are the things that I learned when I was watching my father, when I was studying other people, when I was running away from home. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all of these little patterns that seem so simple. Like, how could it be? But it is. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. 
That's so interesting. Um, one of the things that you've you've said in the past is that um, it's it's the people who have coached you um, that have sort of brought you to you know understand a conversation, to understand um, uh, groups uh, uh, the way you do. That can you tell me a little bit about sort of what you've learned and how you've sort of built on that? So I happen to have, and I was just thinking about them the other day, yesterday, um, amazing clients, some who have been CEOs of big companies, some whose names you know. When I say that I learned from them, I learned from the good and I learned from the bad, okay? Um, Bob Lutz, who was with Chrysler, uh, with Iacocco, and then ended up being head of uh, or chancellor chancellor or chairman at, at GM. In between, I worked with him in a company. And he was one of the most innovative people I've ever heard of. Now, he taught me about expanding space for innovation. He was the one that said, uh, we went around the world and took um, all the GMs that were 31 GMs from different parts of the world that were Exide's leaders. To, we brought them together because we were gonna change the shape of the company. It's a long story, but yes, the essence of it is that Bob was the one that taught me, not a coach who I hired, but one of my clients, about holding the space open for so many people to come together and actually think together. So the word think together in my mind came from Bob Lutz. And I had never really fashioned it that way. Uh, and that helped influence my thinking about conversational intelligence. How do we think together? How different is that than just normal talking together? You know, conversations are different when we think together. And that elevated me up to level three and understanding that part of the brain. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think in some cases my clients who have been, who've been radically um, radical in their own right Mm -hmm. have contributed to this work in many ways. Yeah. You, you mentioned a couple times level three. Can you um, fill folks in if they're, they're not familiar? Yeah. So, so there are three levels of conversation. And the first one is, tr is a transactional conversation. A lot of companies say once they learn these levels, oh, my God, we spend so much time in transaction. It's telling and asking. It really means confirming what you already know. And you go into a meeting and people spend so much time, they laugh now. They say, oh, my God, we were just telling each other what we knew and confirming it. We weren't doing anything new and different. Sometimes it's important to confirm what you know, especially if you're making big decisions, but not every day when you're doing transactions and living transactionally in a company that's trying to grow. They don't fit together. So transaction is one. Um, the second one is positional. In every company, you're constantly making decisions about the future. So positional is having a position about something that's important. Instead of telling and asking, it's advocating. Advocating is a lot stronger, right? And inquiring is a lot stronger because I am now making decisions about my position. So many companies get caught in that as well. The first one they get caught in what's, it's called the tell, sell, yell syndrome. They're just telling, <laughs> telling, telling. The second one they get caught in addicted to being right. They, they're always right and they're gonna push for it. That's where listening is low in both cases. When it goes bad, the leaders aren't listening. What I realized is that this part of the brain, I'm putting my hand up on the very top. <laughs> this is the level, this is where I know everything at the top. When I am strongly about a position, it's this part of the brain, again, I know everything. That's the neocortex plus the limbic brain, which is the brain that fights for what it wants. Those two come together. Level three is what I discovered. And I discovered it because at one time people thought we only had three brains, the lower brain, the limbic brain, and the neocortex. Um, and about 15 years ago, they discovered the prefrontal cortex is very different. And I said, I wonder if the energy exchange between human beings changes when you get to level three. I said, I wonder what level three is, first of all, and then is something happening different? And what I discovered, there's a word called enthalpy, mm -hmm. which I actually thought about when I was 19. Uh, looked up in the dictionary and found that it was a real world, a word. Uh, this is the spooky part. I have no idea where it came from, but I found it in my head. And 
it's the exchange of um, energy between people. It's the one place in the brain that when this part of our brain is open and we feel safe, we are actually giving each other energy to explore new ideas. That is how that exchange, the mirror neuron happens. People are, it's like you have a pathway of energy that goes back and forth between people. When you're in level three, you're open to share and discover. It's a very distinctly different activity than advocate and inquire. Share is that I'm open to give you information that I wouldn't have before. I'm sharing transparently. That's priceless. And then discovering is discovering things that we don't know we don't know yet. So it's going into a zone of exploration of the new and different and then sharing it in some way that it actually starts to make a whole new recipe of things or a whole new song or a whole new symphony. We now know that that part of the brain thrives and we people will live longer lives who exercise level three conversations in companies. Mm-hmm. So it's so important to create that safe space like we did at, at New Wave Entertainment, like I try to do in all my companies where that space becomes so open that people's transparency becomes easy and then trust becomes built. And then once we do that, we literally, and I put my hand back here before, I mark a place in my brain. And every time I'm with a team where I've done that, I go back to that spot and it seems to open it up again. Because trust, once it's anchored, and that's what we're talking about doing, anchored, then people just want more of it, crave more of it, and go to it in such a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. So I encourage companies to experiment with what's called share and discover. Look at your conversations. How many people are feeling transparent and comfortable enough to open up about things that you've thought about that could help the company or challenges that you've had? When do we feel that way? Let's cultivate more of that in companies because the companies will last longer. I can guarantee you every single company that I've taught this to ends up with a a revenue increase beyond what they had their wildest imagination. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's so so interesting. I, I think what is uh, always the most fascinating to me, uh, Judith, is that all of this is in the world. We're we're all uh, having conversations. We're all uh, in cultures, in in groups, uh, in in workplaces. But very few people are reflecting on the actual act of conversation. They're they're not um, listening. They're not thinking about the act of listening. You know, yeah. um, what what are the traits that um, you sort of depend on that that help you navigate this world and help you um, uh, really draw out the observations that you do in the work that you do? What are, what are the traits you depend on the most? For for myself? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's something that I learned when I was very young. I was on the experiment uh, for international living. It's a, where you get to live in a foreign country. Yeah. And their watchword was expect the unexpected. And that got me going on, it's totally okay to be shocked by what happens around you because it's all new and learning and don't take it as a shock that is a hurtful one. It's all about being open to see things differently. And so I've, I had a professor that reinforced that so much she, in my graduate program. She gave me a journal and she said, I want you to observe what's happening around you. There was kids in a nursery school and, and write down everything you see. And she said, then I'm going to read what you see, what you're writing. And, and what she did is she read marked every time I made assumptions um, that meant that I too quickly went to conclude what I was seeing. And so between that phrase, expect the unexpected, and then keeping your eyes open for low judgment, those two were two of the most important things that I ever learned how to do in my life. And I got a good fortune to go to Harvard and study for three months in a team of uh, people that were being observed by psychologists. And they rated us on how we interpreted the dynamics that were going on in the room, whether we went up the ladder of conclusions and made judgments or whether we could stay down and just keep that listening ear open and that eye open. It's hard for human beings, but if there's anything that's most important to train in human beings is that ability to stay open longer because that's when those new insights come in. The new ideas come in, but also the the lower you 
lower judgment. You asked about judgment before. It lowers the judgment factor in your brain. And so you're going to see things differently. You'll take in more. Um, life will become richer. And we now know people that are born today that practice this skill are going to live to 149, not the typical 70s or what it used to be, 40s, that this actually enhances people's life skills and length of life. It's incredible. It's incredible. It really, it, it's the cells are telling us. They're just trying to teach us there's a better way, right? There's a better way. Yeah. They <laughs> work together. They have to be this way. Exactly. Yeah, they, the they, cells work together. The cells work together. Yeah, yeah. Do you want a, a quick thing on, on cancer cells and healthy sure. cells? So um, my husband, Richard, um, actually did these studies on healthy cells and cancer cells. He did oncological research for 10 years. Turns out when cells are unhealthy, I'll tell you, describe them and see how that fits in your life. Um, when cells are unhealthy, the immune system is there to help, but the little flags are being sent up saying, I need help, I need help, I need help. And when you have bad cells that are unhealthy, they don't hear the little cells calling for help. Mm. Normally, when you're healthy, the, the whole surveillance is the immune system comes in, they figure out where you want help, and now I'm zeroing up your ability to handle this, this, and this. It's not there. So I correlate that to companies. When people are in a non-healthy cultural state, these little people down there are saying, hey, boss, I'm seeing all these problems, and this is, I want help. And the boss doesn't hear it. It's like, uh, you're not important enough, or whatever it is. So that's number one. And I call that, the, the there's, it spells DNA. That's the dialogue level. Mm -hmm. Next is that when cells are unhealthy, they sit next to each other, but they miss what's called contact inhibition factor, which is the chemistry that enables them to talk. And so when you're an unhealthy cell, you're trying to talk to your neighbor. Neighbor can't hear. Again, when you're in healthy cells and people are giving each other feedback, I, I learn what you need, you learn what I need, we support each other, we become peer coaches, healthy, great interactions, beautiful, unhealthy, they can't even find each other. It's like they're blind. So that's the end. The needs are not heard. And the last one is A, and that's adapting. In cancer cells, the cells form angiogenic roots and they suck out what's in the system in order to stay healthy. They don't contribute, they don't think about the outside, they suck and they, they, they're entrenched. And that's, again, what we were talking about when leaders get too entrenched and they're not talking and they're not you know, creating healthy, safe environments. Healthy environments, we look at the future and we say, what can we all do together? How do we adapt to the changes? That's a healthy culture. That's a healthy body. So I think there's something interesting about the cell level teaching us about what health is all about that applies to the organizational level, the mm -hmm. cultural level, the team, and the individual level. It's yeah. kind of profound. Yeah. Cells, they're just like us. They're yeah. just like us. <laughs> <laughs> they want to connect. And they, and they want to do good work. I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah. All these little cells are just trying to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, we're, we are out of time, uh, Judith. Uh, so we're, we're going to have to leave it there. But it is uh, fascinating, as always, uh, and always a privilege uh, to, to chat with you about this. It's always, uh, it sets up my day for a completely new, new way of talking to people. And I'm, I'm always uh, lifted by it. So oh. I, I appreciate it. That's all the time we have today. Thanks again to Judith for uh, opening up your uh, day to us and talking to us about all of your wonderful research. And to listen to more podcasts from the series, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and follow us on SoundCloud. Before we leave, I, I do have a, a short uh, word from our sponsor. When you're running a small business, you know that whatever can happen probably will. Chase for Business offers you a complete view of your finances, so no matter what comes your way, you can own it. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business.